1987's Can't Buy Me Love. Can't Buy Me Love. Uh, this is the title of a movie and uh, a movie that uh, ruined the Beatles for me. <laughs> I never listened to the Beatles. I never gave them a chance because when I was uh, eight years old, uh, I heard Can't Buy Me Love over and over and over again and other songs like I Want to Hold Your Hand and uh, Help. And I thought that they were like just the new kids on the block in black and white. Yeah, they were like the Backstreet Boys with like musical talent. Yeah, so I didn't, I really, I know now that they have uh, like a deep catalog of, of amazing music, but at the time it was like, I don't need to hear these catchy jingles uh, to sell milkshakes and Coca-Cola. Anyway, that's my, that's my first impression of this uh, uh, movie was the title, Can't Buy Me Love. Can't Buy Me Love. It came out in 1987. That's correct. Yeah, man. Uh, how about what? What were you up to in 1987? Um, I'm probably probably just posted up in second grade or first grade. I don't know, second mm-hmm. or first grade. Rocking sweatpants. Um, again, just uh, you know, being a child. Hell yeah! I actually saw this when it came out. Did you? Yeah, I did. I was in Orange County, Southern California. Uh, living at my grandma's house uh, on a cul-de-sac, and my aunt at the time was 17, and she was a cheerleader, and her boyfriend was a football player. So what I saw on screen very much uh, reflected exactly what was like the the setting of my summertime. Right, because aesthetically, Southern California probably looked a lot like Arizona, which you know where this film took place—that suburban cul-de-sac style of living. Totally. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we can jump into... Let's jump into the setting as, like, a thing for this film. Okay. I'm, right? Yeah. We should probably introduce ourselves just for consistency's sake. I mean, if you guys don't know us, <laughs> know us yet, uh, it's me, Gabe Pacheco. It's me, Gerardo. Gerardo Depardieu. What's up? What's, go- <laughs> What's going on, man? <laughs> L- I loved you in Green Card, bro. Thank you. <clears throat> so, uh... Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, 1987. We can start. We can start there. 87. A lot going on. Um, you can go first. Hell yeah. Okay. So this guy <laughs> uh, won the Super Bowl, and the first thing they asked is, uh, "What are you going to do now?" And he said, "I'm going to Disneyland." Yeah. And the the world went crazy. Which ruined Super Bowls for me. Yeah. That <laughs> that quote took the world by storm, and uh, for the for the next year, anytime someone asked, "What are you going to do now?" They would say, "I'm going to Disneyland." Yep, that was uh, Phil Simms. That was the quarterback for the New York Giant, the New York Football Giants, uh, a team that I, you know, don't don't care for at all. You know what? I did. I've been to Giants Stadium once. I saw ACDC at Giant Stadium. That's who you should see at Giant Stadium, dude. Kevin, I went to that. Yeah, it was, it was. Did you really? We saw a guy pee on the guy in front of him on the floor. It was awesome. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. Uh, people did not wait in line uh, to use the porta potties; they just peed <laughs> under the people seated in front of them. Savages. <laughs> and Anvil opened up the show. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. I don't know what that is. 
Uh, Anvil, Anvil is a band, a heavy metal band that never made it. But, yeah, uh, sounds they, sounds about right. They influenced uh, everyone else. All the other, all their peers really respected them. And uh, Spinal Tap is based on Anvil. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So they are they are the muses, unsung heroes of the metal scene. That's crazy. Uh, another great quote from 1987 is, "This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs." Right. So uh, very, you know, a very in depth. Um, uh, drug policy, you know, uh, you know, to to create awareness. Middle of the war on drugs, right there. Yeah, just really progressive, really progressive way of looking at uh, the disease of drug addiction. Yeah, and instead of finding the cure, you know, just uh, imprisoning everybody involved in it, except for the people that really, except for the big time players. <laughs> right. I mean, well, the, the, it was around this time that Nancy Reagan was uh, hanging out on top of tanks. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> SWAT and, tanks. <laughs> yeah, and bull, and bulldozing. Uh, Poor people's houses in South Central. Yep. Her husband, also another famous quote from that year, was the Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, Ronald Reagan. Mr. Gorbachev was uh, Times Man of the Year that year. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we also have to remember that the minute that uh, the USSR decided to uh, embrace America's neoliberal policies, um, just all of the old people in that country died because they got uh, taken off socialized uh, medicine. Wow. And uh, health care. So they just pulled the plug on all these old people. That's but not... you know, on the bright side, everyone in Russia got to drink Coca Cola and uh, wait in wear... line for blue jeans. <laughs> yeah, wear Fantastic. jeans. That's the Russia that I remember. Um, oh, well. <laughs> that's the Russia that I can set my clock to. <laughs> uh, Michael Douglas is Gordon Gecko in Another Wall Street. Great quote. He said, uh, "Greed, uh, for lack of a better word, is good." Yeah. So I guess I'm bringing. Uh, we're bringing up a lot of these. A reference points because this movie was made in the height of that sort of 80s yeah. baby boomer yuppie culture. Which, I mean, for you and I, at our, at our age, that was uh, that, that was sort of the, the, the era that defined uh, our young sensibilities during our developmental stages. Like, 80s America was where, when that's where we came up. Hell yeah. This year, uh, 1987, other movies <clears throat> that came out that I watched as well were Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3. Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors. That's my favorite one. Yeah, yeah. Big, big hair metal. Yep. That. The soundtrack was amazing heavy Dockin. metal. I was just yes. going to say that word. Dokken. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 came out. Full Metal Jacket, which I don't think I saw until like two or three years later. Right. La Bamba, which I definitely saw thanks to my Chicano roots. You know, my dad say. took me to that. And I had the record at home. <laughs> we used to dance to that in the living room. Um, Full Metal Jacket, man. That Lost was a good Boys. One. Ah, Ooh. a lot of good movies. Oh, and Predator. Oh, uh, ho- holy uh. shit! <laughs> Those are actually two of my favorite movies of all time. Predator might be is hands down the best Arnold Schwarzenegger movie without question. Here, here. Did and I say RoboCop yet? Because no. it also what? came out that year. So RoboCop, Full Metal Jacket, Night- Dream Warriors. Yeah, that's an embarrassment of riches. That's right. That's right. Oh, uh, don't forget Fatal Attraction, which gave us the term bunny boiler. Still never seen Ooh. it. Oh, man. Well, maybe that's one uh, we'll watch at some point. Yeah. Mm, scribble, scribble. Yeah. Take notes of that. Oh, and Superman 4, Quest for Peace. <laughs> <laughs> to end on a high note. Uh, to, to actually, to piggyback on your point, there was a guy named Alfonso Hayden Jr. He was a robbery uh, suspect in Sacramento, fled from police into a darkened movie theater. 
which just happened to be showing RoboCop, became yeah. so engrossed in the movie that he stayed till the end. After everybody left, he was still there, yeah. and the cops caught him. <laughs> <laughs> so RoboCop, fighting crime in so many different <laughs> ways, inadvertently fighting crime. That's great. Uh, Matthew Broderick, the actor uh, in 1987... This is a stone-cold bummer. <laughs> ...killed two women <laughs> due to careless driving on a holiday in Ireland. So, uh, Ended oh. up paying $175 and never it. serving any jail time. That's right. So, uh, if you ever wondered what the price on Irish people's heads are. <laughs> in 1987. Yeah, 1987. We don't know, due to inflation, what, the, what it would be now. It would have been. <laughs> oh my god, that's a. But uh, $1,000 of... in 1987 is uh, the equivalent of $2,184. And uh, $184. And $0.90. Cents. Yeah. Um. Well, let's get into the movie. Yeah, man. Opening scene of that film. Uh, the, it's the most 80s like t- opening 10 minutes imaginable. Like girls with feathered hair that look like they all slept with the band Poison. Uh, BMX stunts. Yes, there's a... Um... A nerd in a f- fucking uh, National Geographic Explorer's hat mowing a lawn. Right, so, so uh, what, what you need to know about this movie is that it's, uh, we got a nerd uh, character... <laughs> Uh, I'm not calling him a nerd, like, you know, subjectively. I'm just saying objectively, that's that's the picture they paint. Socially challenged. He's socially challenged. He he wears a the opening scene. We see him. He's wearing a safari hat. He looks like a scientist out of a, a like a Far Side comic strip, and he's mowing lawns. And the girl who lives next door to him is the most popular girl at the high school. They're both seniors, and uh, our man, played by Patrick Dempsey has never been popular, and he hangs out with four geeks, and all they do is uh, play cards on the weekends. They're socially ostracized. And he, uh, Patrick Dempsey, covets the next-door neighbor. And his, uh, basically, his dream is to be with her and to be a popular kid, and he has one school year left to be a popular kid. So uh, the premise of the film is that he rents her friendship for a month to gain social status. A little more than, fr- yeah, her companionship, which turns into a, uh, which they cultivate into a relationship going into the first day of school. Right. So uh, so that's I, that's all the background people need. If you haven't yeah. seen the movie, it's on Netflix. It's free. Uh, we're just going to kind of jump into, like, you know, what we think about the characters and the scenes as they progress. So starting off. We got this guy, the first thing we see is we painted a picture of him as the ultimate uh, geek. He's got the horn rim glasses. He's wearing a safari cap. He has a, a space t-shirt on. Yeah, that says you are here in the black hole or the solar system. Right, so he's like proto-Big Bang Theory. He's 100% 80s uh, nerd geek dweeb spaz. Yeah, and he's, he's uh, mowing lawns to make money. He needs to save $1,000 to buy a telescope. So right here, like, the, the value that, um, the positive value that we see in him as a character is that he's incredibly hardworking, and he has a dream and a vision that he's building towards. He's like everything you strive to be in a, as an adult at, like, 16. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and uh... Developmentally f- f- far along, way past where I am. So, like, honestly, it's incredibly, it's admirable. Everything, <laughs> that is a really admirable quality. And then the next thing we see juxtaposed to that 
is at like one of those little uh, white rabbit cars uh, that uh, that's a drop top Volkswagen Cabri- Cabriolet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it looks like it's out of an LA Gear commercial. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's like three girls in the car with uh, feathered and teased hair, um, and they're all in like cheerleader garb, and they run inside the house. And here we see just sort of like a snapshot of 1980s youth culture materialism. One hundred percent. The kid who works hard to save up for a telescope. Like, when you think about him, if I close my eyes, all I could hear is your dad being like, I'm proud of you, son. <laughs> right, right, right. And we're, but we're at the dawn of sort of intelligence. Intelligence isn't a virtue yet in pop culture or for youth movies. Or has so, it, is it, is it today? Well, I, I mean, so like when he goes inside and he's talking at the dinner table with his parents yeah. about wanting to buy a telescope, his, his mom is like, oh, you're going to get a little microscope? Yeah. And he's like, it's a telescope, Mom. And she's like, whatever. Yeah. She's so. like, whatever, you fucking nerd. <laughs> right, That's great, right. son. Yeah. So, there, so and, and even his father, who's inc- very encouraging, doesn't quite have uh, the same passion outside of the idea of working, working right. hard. He has a tremendous passion for turtlenecks. <laughs> So that's something. And for uh, and for sixties uh, bubblegum pop music, he, he he's playing uh, the Beach Boys in the background. Yep, a lot of surf rock is playing in the back of this. Um, yep, whenever he's on screen. This is true. Washing his uh, whatever that car was it looked like the sort of like the model for the uh, Ghostbusters Ghostmobile. Ecto yeah. one. Echo one. Ecto one. But yeah. So that's the setting. Uh, the three popular girls go in to, you know, uh, and this is another big 80s thing. The girls, like, sort of the teeny bopper mall culture. Yeah. Girl has her mom's credit card. Mm-hmm. And her <laughs> mom was like, you can only use the Neiman Marcus card, honey. And we talked about this. It was just, like, the most, like, white mom shit I've ever seen. And then she was just, like, literally shuts the door. Is upset with her daughter for not using the card. She goes, oof. Yeah. Credit cards were a big deal. Like, right, right. this is the advent of credit card culture. This is uh, Reagan uh, sort of deregulating lenders. This yeah. is kind of what f- fucked everybody over. Because when you think about, like, <clears throat> your grandparents, they would save money in, uh, like, they'd save all the pennies in coffee tins. Shoe boxes, yeah. And this idea of being thrifty and frugal mattered, and putting your money in a bank was seen as a, a positive virtue because the bank would give you interest on... Huh. The money that you left in there, and the, after uh, credit cards, there's there's absolutely no reason to leave your money in a bank anymore. Your mo- your money loses uh, value in a checkings account, whereas uh, now like we're your value is in how much you owe people. Like you're, it's better to have um, uh, rotating debt, where right. you're constantly paying money off. Uh, it'll help your credit score rather than just paying off all your debt at once. Yeah, it's like those lines where, you know, like it's good to have a balance, like like a running balance on a card as opposed to, you know, not having... It's like one of the... It's, you know, bad, bad credit is better than no credit sort of philosophy, yeah. which actually makes sense. Right, right. Well, it's kind of like a, if, if you're a loan shark or in the mob, yeah. uh, it's good... It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good to have your teeth into people. So <laughs> Johnny Soprano, <laughs> right? So now, like the government and the banks and the credit card companies are are basically just mobsters. Yeah. That uh, and and they 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 want you into them. 
I've got to stop watching. Like, <laughs> I've literally been watching The Sopranos like again, no, and it's... everything cross references with that shit in my head. Like yeah. everything I see. It's my th- it's my third time through the show. I mean, yeah. But uh, I mean, but... my season two is the best one. I'm telling you. Uh, back back to this though. Like like I look at uh, Patrick Dempsey, like his character mowing lawns to save money as an as an outdated um, model for how to be in the 80s. Yeah. So he's like old school in the 80s. Right. Uh, where the other kids are living off credit cards and he's actually working hard. Yeah, it was like a, he was a, it was basically the equivalent to like a paper route. Um, I thought I, I really wanted <clears throat> to talk about the the setting for a minute because like it, it's, it relates to him mowing lawns and you see that he is uh, they're like in the desert, and they're it's a suburb right on the border of um, like no man's land. Mm-hmm. And there's like a bunch of movies in the '80s that have a similar like suburban landscape. That um, Tucson, Arizona, I think was like the actual city they they chose to use, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is uh, the the sun again in like Reagan's '80s. The Sun Belt uh, was booming with um, uh, military. Uh, it, the military, um, what is it? Routes? Transplants? Uh, in the 1980s, the suburbs uh, in the Sun Belt were booming because of the military-industrial complex and because the U.S. government was giving grants to like all sorts of aerospace right. and uh, military tech companies. Cool. Um, and, and we see that later. Yep. Uh, so, like... While watching this, we didn't have a backstory on what all the parents did, mm-hmm. but in my mind, I was like, oh, all these people build bombs. <laughs> exactly. And when we get to the school, you also see that like, right next to the school where they are, there's a big pile of dirt, because they're still um, building more stuff. There's but yeah, it's all brand, like, brand new developments. Like Those cities are like not like urban sprawl, technically, but the, it was like the, the advent of suburban living, like the real like huge boom in it, I think, especially in, in, in sparsely populated States where, where governments had people working yeah. for them. Yeah, uh, and and like other movies it, during this time period that show like the um, development of the suburbs this way are E.T. and mm-hmm. uh, and Elliot and his crew are like constantly biking around these like, abandoned or being built up uh, new developments. Yeah, and then another one is uh, Poltergeist. Yeah, mm. so. I don't know. I, that's just a thing about that's if you're looking at films during this time, uh, and they take place in the suburbs, you you const, you always have uh, this sense of new. Yeah, that's very true. They're a, they are ahistorical. That's quite the read in there, Gabe. Another thing is when we get to the school, uh, everyone is uh, white. No, there's three black dudes and they're da- <laughs> and they're da- literally dancing, and all the all they do is like, "What's up, Holmes? High five, and then dance. <laughs> That was it. That was it. No, no agency erasure. Nothing. Uh, and I thought, I thought, oh man, again, this school looks like uh, like the Third Reich one. <laughs> <laughs> like this is fascist utopia again. And we saw. I mean, I feel like I said this when we watched Say Anything. It was like Seattle looks that way too. Right. At least in the eighties in high school. At least on film. Yeah. On yeah. Film. So this is another one of those films that really doesn't do a lot to represent. Uh, any people of color. Except for uh, Rico Suave, G- Gerardo, and yeah. the one Latin girl. That is apparently the easiest girl in school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did a great job with her, too. Iris? Iris. Yeah. Right. Uh, I th- Yeah, Iris de Velasquez. Is that her name? Yes. Wow. 
Uh, so yeah, so let's go through the cast a little bit. Okay. We've got uh, Patrick Dempsey, who we brought up. Um, he was 21 when he made this movie. Was he really? Yeah. The only thing that I know him from, and, and, and like I don't know him from anything, honestly. I, I remember him from this movie and maybe like one other 80s movie that I can't remember the name of, but I'm sure we can figure it out. Uh, and uh, he was on Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as McDreamy, McLoveboat or some shit. Uh, he was 21, and he married, this year, 1987, he married his uh, 48-year-old manager slash acting coach. Uh, wow. Which is a, a huge, you know, who am I to judge uh, what the heart wants? Yes. But uh, but I thought that was interesting. Like, he, he's at the height of his sort of uh, teen, like, dreamboat, Er, like that era, the heartthrob right. era of his career, mm-hmm. and he he locks it down with the oldest lady he can find. It's a Tom Cruise like move. Yes, and uh, and then we've got. So I don't really know him from much. Yeah, I don't either. I never watched Grey's Anatomy, but I know he likes uh, he likes racing cars. Apparently, yeah, he took the uh, his entire paycheck from this movie and bought like his first car, which was like a Porsche nine eleven Carrera, mm-hmm. which is a twenty one year old move if I've ever heard one. <laughs> And uh, then we've got the uh, the star Cindy, Cindy Mancini. Yes, and Amanda Peterson. Amanda Peterson. Okay, she was fifteen. When oh, she was she? Was. See, yeah. she actually looked really young, to the point where like her there was that scene where like her mother's like the guy she, her mother was dating comes yeah. in and he's like I can see like good looks to run in this family, and they run fast. <laughs> like that shit actually straight up grossed me out yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Like he was like a scuzz buckety. As they come. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was like, man, that's uncomfortable for me to even watch this. Let alone, I would like... love if that guy wasn't really an actor, but was in fact a, just a narcissistic producer of this film. Just got like, in and have like to make a, a gross comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so She was young, yeah, really young. She was young, and this movie sort of like uh, thrust her into the spotlight, and um, it didn't turn out well for her in the end. Uh, she died of a drug overdose. In what was ruled as an accidental drug overdose. 1995. So, that's sad. It's always sad when I see a young, vivacious actress on the screen. Well, she died in 2015. 2015? Yeah, she was 45 years old. She had uh, medical issues, um, like a, a, some sort of uh, medical procedure, and was taking pain, hysterectomy, and was taking pain meds and morphine, and her friend got her morphine, and she just overdosed, which is sad. Nothing's worse than an accidental drug overdose. Yeah, also, just don't take your friend's morphine. Yeah, or just, you know, don't give your friend's morphine, I guess. Good friends don't give friend's morphine. No, they should have covered that in this movie. They covered a lot of moral uh, subjects. Um, all right, so we got we got those two, and then you brought up, so there's, like, the football team. Yeah. Those guys are uh, <clears throat> prominent in yep. this. Jocks. And you said Rico Suave is in this. Rico Suave is the... Uh, yeah, he is. Can we fact check this? Because I'm, I, I don't, I'm skeptical. Oh my god! I'm gonna ask you to never doubt me again. Did you know Rico Suave is from Ecuador? I didn't know until I googled him yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I actually hadn't thought about Rico Suave. So when did his music career begin? Uh, 1990 was when that album, when that I guess it was an album. The song came out, Rico mm-hmm. Suave. Uh, I know that he was in Colors, because I remember seeing him, and I was like, I know that dude's face. I'm like, how do I know that dude's face? The same thing happened yesterday. I was like, that motherfucker's Rico Suave. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, so this movie actually had some uh, some like crossovers with music. We've got Rico Suave and Paula Abdul did all the choreography. Right. 
That therein lies the ethnic diversity in this film. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just black guys high fiving anymore and dancing in the hallways, like on their own. I noticed that it was like a big '80s theme. We would just be like, black dudes in sunglasses and in, indoors, just dancing randomly, like together in a group in a hallway, like practicing, like uh, I think popping the, and the assistant principal or the principal at the school was also a black man. I really I googled to see if that was Chico DeBarge because that motherfucker had Chico DeBarge hair, but it wasn't Chico DeBarge. Yeah. It was just that soul glow. I thought he looked like Oats from Holland Oats. <laughs> just like an actually <laughs> black version of that dude. Uh, yeah. Okay. So we've got we've got them, and uh, then uh, this. I thought this film was like the. There were seeds of what Judd Apatow's been doing now, in this movie, in that there is a like a vibrant cast of nerds. Right. They just aren't the stars. But like, in a way, in a way, yeah. they—I mean—they're not the leads, but they are kind of the stars of the film, in, in my opinion. They're the—they are the most interesting. I'm going to cut you deep. They—they're <laughs> the—I think they're the most interesting characters, but they are not. Um, like we spend a lot more time with the jocks and the pretty—the pretty girls. Well, yeah, they're the the, the the pinnacle of cool at this point, which is so funny because there's nothing cool about them. Yeah. And and they are IRL. Well, so so I wanted to like cl- class is a huge thing for me in this. Mm-hmm. Like the guy uh, Patrick Dempsey is hardworking and he's saving his money, and all of these other kids that are cool. Uh, yes, granted the football players have skill, but you see that they're all driving impossibly uh, like high status cars. You know, there's like Porsches yeah. in this a Ferrari. There's, yeah, the there's... Ferrari was hilarious because once they pulled up next to that dude on their BMX bikes, the guy couldn't drive stick. I don't know if anyone picked up on that. Yeah. He stalled out and he was trying to. He just made the worst noise. It's a metaphor. It was. So this like materialism of uh, what teenager, what seventeen year old, what sixteen year old is going to be driving a Ferrari or a Porsche? I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't know if that that wasn't a high school kid. I don't think. And it didn't look. It didn't look like the movie was self aware around this. Like it didn't look like it was done for comedic exaggeration. It just felt like this realism of uh, that's what made these people cool was having good cars, and that's the message of the film. Yeah. Like dress like a yuppie. Play sports. Play sports and have have stuff. Basically, be rich. Be be uh, privileged. And and also be dumb. <laughs> They like also um, encouraged their own ignorance. They were excited about being ignorant. Like there was a moment where um, Patrick Dempsey's character like talks to the, talks to uh, the two best friends, the two girls who are cheerleaders. Yeah, and he goes, "Your uh, rhododendrons are rhododendrum. Your rhododendrons are are the best. Yeah, the best pair of rhododendrons in the whatever it was. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and and they're like." What did he say? And instead of learning the name of the flower, yeah, she, like, I don't care. She goes, yeah. She's like, what did he say? I don't care. Fair enough. Yeah, there was like back then. It, was, there, it seemed to be like this move in like anti-intellectualism, like the Valley Girl vibe, yeah. and like everyone just being dumb. Jocks are dumb. Hot girls are dumb. Nerds are virtuous and intelligent. Right, and yeah. they're and and like, but people don't even want to hear when they have interesting things to say. Yeah, of course they just shut it out Im- immediately. <laughs> And block I, it out. Yeah, and like his friends are all, his nerdy friends are all cool in different ways. Like the one with the incredibly uh, square angular head, uh, and the and the buzz cut and the leather jacket like grows his own mushrooms. 
And I'm like, this guy is going to become like a Vice magazine correspondent uh, and have his own show like 20 years from now where he grows psilocybin mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a, an interesting throwback move. His, his, get, his get up. Yeah, yeah. He actually kind of like looks like my dad. I know the actor. He was also in Blow and a couple of other movies. I don't know why I said Damn that. Oh, uh, one more trope that I wanted to hit on, like they use another '80s trope, is like the young, like the obnoxious meddling younger brother. Mm-hmm. From like, so this 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 guy was played by a fucking gnarly toothed uh, Seth Green, <laughs> who basically did nothing but like try to meddle and just get farts in his face constantly. Yeah, and I feel oh man, so yeah, this the trope it was so huge in the '80s, like a precocious child that speaks like an adult. Yeah. And it's like whoever the stand-up comedian who did punch up for the script, like writes himself into the movie, as, and it's always awful. It sucks. It's so cringeworthy now. Yeah. Uh, it's like the it's like Wesley's character from Mr. Belvedere. Wesley. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I hate precocious kids in movies. Yeah, I like re- precocious kids in general. <laughs> <laughs> did they ever show Grandma Huffnagel? Side note, a Mr. Belvedere side note. I don't think they ever did. <laughs> Just wanted to check. Just wanted to see if that was still a thing. She's she's still out there. That's a deep cut. Feel free to uh, email us. Yeah. So yeah, that trope, you know, as you also saw in like Better Off Dead, mm-hmm. uh, the, the younger brother character. There's just yeah that that character. Um, oh oh, here we go. So the redhead, who's his really good friend, his best friend, Captain the Burbs. Uh, he also was Malachi in Children of the Corn. Was he? That makes yes. sense. He has definitely uh, looks like his. Parents were close in relation, familial relations. He's got that sort of uh, inbred look. <laughs> but yeah, he was uh, he was he was in the Burbs as well. That's where I remember him from. Mm-hmm. The general conceit of this movie is that uh, Patrick Dempsey uh, purchases uh, cool points. Cool points. Yeah, cool he, bucks. He he rents a girl for a month. And uh, he is basically transferring his uh, real capital into social capital. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about this as a, as a message or like a strategy. You know, it is, it is prostitution. I mean, he's investing in Tang. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he is uh, hiring an escort for a month. I mean, that, that was my take. On sure, it. without actual... Uh... <laughs> Zero penetration, but yeah, he's getting her out of a bind. He has the money to help, uh, and he wants you know it's a, it's apparently like a, it's it's a symbiotic relationship. I guess is a better way to put it. Yeah, is it like hiring a tutor? Is he basically hiring a so? I mean, a social tutor. Yeah, right. that's actually I would I would I would like it more to that than straight up prostitution. He she's like Hitch. She's a female version <laughs> of Hitch. <laughs> It, she's like, uh, I don't know if there are female pickup artists, but like... I'm sure uh, there are. Actually, I don't think they would ever have to put that much effort into it. Well, like... You in want that, this? Uh-huh. <laughs> in, in that, like, a, like a pickup artist is someone that would be high, like, that, um, like, dudes who can't pick up women... I think there would hire. be a, a female pickup artist to help men pick up women would be... Right. ...a goddamn goldmine. No, I, I, I'm sure that that yeah, that has, has to, to exist. exist. Female like relationship coaches and shit for so, sure. Relationship coach. So basically, she's be she's like a relationship coach. She's taking on a pretty hands-on approach since she's actually like part of the relationship technically. But um, 
the reason the distinction is that he he tells her I'm I'm going to rent you to be my girlfriend for a month which and you have to pretend to be my girlfriend which is different than saying you have to be my relationship coach. Mm-hmm. So that that is really the role that she takes on is like a social dynamics like um personal trainer. Right. Uh but everyone else is under the illusion that they are having a a sexually active uh penetrative relationship together. Right. Yeah. So even if they aren't having sex, it's her reputation that she's selling for the money. She's selling the idea that she is having um like, you know, just, just all the the whole the Kama Sutra. I mean, they're reading pages of that book together. Mm. That they're making their own um, Joy of Sex journal. Seth Green pointed out at one point, uh, you know, supply and demand. Like the very first thing you learn in any economics class. Right, she's got... She's got supply, he's, he's, he's the demand. He's the demand. <clears throat> and he's got the capital. That's right. <clears throat> for the investment. Correct. Um. So this is like where the, the movie starts to take off. Um, and they, you know, start fraternizing publicly sort of come out as a, as, as a relationship she sort of inevitably sees like the good in him and how he's different from like the jockey dumb dude she's been dating she also has like a secret poetic side that she lets him in right because they're there's they're, uh, sitting around and there's one scene where you know she describes her identity and she says basically I'm only good at shopping and hanging out yeah me, and, me too uh, yeah, and you know what? Honestly, she's exactly what companies would like to hear. Yeah, she's... Like, they won. The education system, uh, television, the government won. They made a perfect consumer. And literally, that's like the, the, the biggest buying power demographic. We talked about it in What Women Want, which is a movie about advertising, and then fe- females in advertising specifically. Uh, young women tend to buy more stuff than anyone. Like, I worked at a record store when I was, you know, like 80, 18 or 19 in college, and, uh... Women were the ones that bought all the albums. Yeah. Like, all the new stuff. Like, they would literally come in, like, do you have this one? Like, I, do you have the guy with the song? And I'm like, yeah, this dude. She's like, yeah, I'm take just buys the album. Like, it, they So much buying power. Like, they're the ones that buy everything. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because, like, when we when we watched uh, Say Anything and um, uh, Ten Things I Hate About You, yeah. we had characters that were... Uh, the, late, the protagonists that were uh, females were were painted, the characters were painted as uh, smarter, uh, more ambitious, more educated right. than their, than the guys. This is also, uh, yeah, 12 years later. And in, in, in this film, she is self-aware enough to say, I, I like hanging out and shopping. But um, they don't paint her as ambitious. No. In the same way that we see with the, these other movies. Julia Stiles is like a much more clearly defined... Um, She's happy being, or if not happy being a cheerleader, she feels uh, she's resigned herself to that role right. of being a popular cheerleader yep. in this film. And and you were saying that she that he uh, Patrick Dempsey is able to um, inspire her. She just sees a, a side to him that she doesn't see, and like the basically one dimensional people she spends her time with. Yeah, like the vapid, you know, clique that she hangs out with. And we, uh, and I think the moment that that all comes to a head, where we see it, uh, the apex of that is when they go to the uh, airplane graveyard. Yeah. Which goes back to my military industrial complex idea. Yeah. 
You know, great uh, point, man. I uh, never would have even thought about that. That we go and we and they go and they hang out and have their final date in the resting place of all of these weapons of mass destruction. That was their final date. Yeah, that's well. That was the end of the month. Uh, that that she was contractually uh, obligated to um, hang out with him in public. And they go and they hang out inside of like an old bomber. And uh, look at the moon together. It's a. It's just a very sort of Reagan Reagan esque movie. It's like his like administration like just secretly fun, like <laughs> like a lighthearted version of Reaganomics. Yeah, <laughs> tickle down economics. <laughs> they uh, <laughs> I like tickle down economics is going to be like a retro porn title. So you know to to continue with what you were saying, which is a, a cool point. So like basically, people moved in there. Through government jobs, and like you were saying earlier, yeah. like a huge southwestern portion of the, you know, from L.A. to like, you know. Texas, probably. Yeah, yeah I guess from Texas all the way to L.A. to, to Anaheim. Yeah. Just like, you know, wealthy people who made money from the government and from the expanding of the military-industrial complex. And so they, yeah, so get in. they're there in that graveyard. It yep. reminds me, it's like, uh, also made me think of the elephant graveyard from The Lion King. But uh, <laughs> I don't know why. I just... Graveyards. Graveyards. Uh, always a great place to make out. And uh, uh, this is, so So it comes to a head, uh, I think one of the most interesting lines is when she says, um, he shows her the moon and uh, like all the different crevasses and craters and talks about its origin. Mm-hmm. And then she, she says, you've taken all the romance out of it. But uh, I, and he's like, I'm sorry. She's like, no, I just see it in a different way now. Yeah. And so that's that's cool that um, he's shifted her perspective. He's waking up her sensibilities. Yeah, yeah. And then he kills it right after that. Oh yeah, yeah. So so this is when they could have made out, and it could have been a genuine relationship. But she wanted it. She wanted to make out. She liked him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then you know they break up. Yeah. Chapter two of the film. He has uh, he has taken no. all of her social capital. And he is now the cool guy after they break up. And he's he's of... ready to sell. <laughs> Stocks hit an all-time high. He's, he's selling. Yeah, yeah. So they orchestrated a, a public breakup uh, in, in, you know, I don't know what they, they it, the big horseshoe in front of the school where I, everyone's around. I like, I like that. He's, it, like, his stocks are up and he's, he's ready to sell. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, and he's, his hair slicked back like Gordon Gecko. Just complete makeover. Like Gordon Gecko. Um, so, yeah, they have, like, a public breakup where he kind of crosses the line a little bit. Yeah. And sort of sells her out, making her feel like, you know, basically saying he can't afford her anymore. She's, like, too costly, like, high maintenance, and, and he just he's going broke dating her. Right. Like, the only reason, the, the biggest dynamic in a teenage relationship is that uh, the, the girl is going to be taking money right. from the from the boy. Like he pulls out his wallet, he shows that it's empty. And I was like, who what? That's really that's really gauche. That's uh I mean I, I've never looked at a relationship in, in, in that way before. Where I think of my partner uh like just leeching all of my money out of me. Yeah. It's not a good feeling, I don't think. And it's not a good way great way to be portrayed, especially when that wasn't the case. Even though I mean technically I guess it was the case since she took his life savings to make him cool yeah i mean I, she actually took it with more grace 
in the film well, than I think a real person would have. I mean, other than the fact that she slapped him, but I think she was so caught off guard by the line of the line that he chose to take in in the breakup. Yeah, you know what caused it, and she, I think she was actually genuinely off. But I thought I thought that was, in my opinion, the best acting job uh, in the movie was that one scene and her her specifically, the way she was so like offset and off put by what he was saying, like genuinely, and then playing the same role. I like that scene. So this is like uh, may- maybe a little off topic, but. Um, this idea, uh, you know, the concept of a Judas goat. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard of it. <laughs> so, like a like a Judas goat. Um, let's say these goats uh, land on these goats get shipwrecked on an island. Yeah. And they will uh, eat up all of the local vegetation, and it kills off all the local animals. So the hunters can't catch the goats because they climb up into the rocks and up in, into the mountains. And uh, so what they'll do is they'll take an incredibly uh, sexy goat. And they'll put a tracker on it, and then that they'll let it go free, and that goat attracts all of the other goats. And then once it's got them all together, uh, they ca- then they can pick off the other goats. So in some way, I kind of feel like Patrick Dempsey's character has turned Cindy into his Judas goat to help him get <laughs> all of the other the other goats, or rather sheep in this instance. Because that's what we see. The popularity really is like um, it, it, it is monkey see, monkey do. Right. Where like all you need is one uh, higher, high status monkey to pay attention to you. And then all the other monkeys kind of like will rationalize that whatever your behavior is must be appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> um. And this works, and companies do this now too, with uh, people on, like, like uh, they'll pay I- influencers. So, like, if you're, like, a cool dude on Instagram, uh, a company will pay you, and they won't say, like, put Pepsi, like, pep- they, like Pepsi, they won't say put Pepsi in all of your uh, photos, because that would be too uh, transparent. Right. But they'll pay you to just sort of, like, low-key find ways to put Pepsi uh, branding around, like, and, and sort of pitch this lifestyle that they want their consumers to yeah. to buy into. Those dudes are making a lot of money. So, yeah, like the fat Jew. Yeah, and uh, fuck Jerry and all those guys. The meme tank tank Sinatra. So Beige. we're... <laughs> Beige cashmere sweater. Cardigan. That's the dude's girlfriend. Fuck Jerry's girlfriend. Yeah? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, Insta, Insta schmoes. And his coolness. I would have been really upset. Like, the day one when he shows up with her and she tears his uh, button, button-down button shirt. He wasn't, yeah, he wasn't off. thrilled. <laughs> um, so then he becomes, like, you know, the pinnacle of cool, and they call him the Ronster, from Ronald, Ronald McDonald Miller to now he's the Ronster. Yeah. So whatever the Ron's doing is cool. Just and immediately starts just macking on girls. Yeah, and this <clears throat> and so, they are so gross. Like they just go right after, right at him, right after they break up. Like he broke up like eighteen minutes prior with with their their friend. And yeah, both girls were like, "You're looking hot, Ronnie." And then they both ask him out in front of each other. Yeah, and they it doesn't seem like they mind uh, that he's double dipping. He's Jose and loyal. No, no, they don't give a shit. They don't care. He's going out <laughs> with one on a Friday, the next one on a Saturday. Yeah. Uh, and, and honestly, this to me seemed like the most progressive school ever. I was like, how sex positive are these people? They don't have any hangups 
over uh, sleeping with um, with each other's uh, like exes. It feels um, feels like a like a polyamorous like bonobo tribe. <laughs> uh, oh, the, so the, the best scene in the movie. Well, this, this is yeah. yeah. This, I want to I want to hear I want to hear what you think. Well, I think the best scene uh, for me was the dance scene. Okay. Yeah, and um, it reminded me. I watched this uh, YouTube video that everybody should check out, and it's called "The First Follower," and what it takes place uh, at a Sasquatch festival, and you see this lunatic Sasquatch. Sasquatch. Okay. And so you see this dude, and he's wearing like just a little loincloth, and he's dancing to the to the song uh, that goes "I Gotta Be Unstoppable." And he's dancing to this song, and the narrator goes, uh, right now, this guy just looks like a homeless lunatic. Yeah. But the most important person is the first follower, the early adopter. And then you see uh, somebody start dancing with him. Yeah, it was the girl. Mirroring him. Yes. Yeah. And then that person is actually the leader, because the, the, the first adopter validates the lunatic behavior and makes it okay. And then the job of the of the dancer is to is to encourage his early followers, right? And like you know, uh, show validate the fact that they're doing that they're going along with his routine. And then everyone around will start joining in. And by the end of uh, of the event, if you are not copying what everyone else is doing, you become the outcast, right? So you must follow along if you don't want to be um, ostracized. And this dance scene is a perfect example of that working. Yep. So like personal confidence and having one early adopter. And his the girlfriend who he brought to the dance, it would have been social suicide for her to not, for her to um, not follow his dancing. Oh yeah, because she was with him. I don't even know if that was her motivation or she was just like, fuck it. I don't know if it was her, um, if it was her, uh, I don't know conscious, if it was a conscious thought. Yeah, that's but, true. You know, her, uh, because he was immediately, as soon as, as soon as he started dancing in. in that manner, yeah, people judged him immediately. They're like, oh, he's a special ed kid. Like, what a right. spaz. And then as soon as, like, one person, you know, then it obviously snowballs into a bunch of people. Yeah, his cool, his girlfriend did it, who was attractive and cool. And yeah. Cool. And then the two jocks. Yep. And once, two alpha males decide that they're going to follow this fucking artisanal new wave hipsters uh, African anteater dance moves like everyone else follows along. It's just a cascade of approval. Yep. And the the four, the nerds uh, who were playing the wall on the bleachers were the only ones that knew where the dance came from. Yeah. And that was like a great punchline. Yeah, because the they, they watch PBS. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. And I love how, like, sort of disgusted by that whole event uh, uh, Cindy Mancini's character was. She was just like, what a bunch of sheep. Like, <laughs> right. she, she hated... That really, like, was the, the, the point that started to set her off. And I guess it also showed her, like, the illusion of what her world yeah. was. Yeah. You know? Trying to, trying to fight your way up the social hierarchy. True. 100% true. Another good point the movie makes. So that was, I mean, that was a good scene. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so what happens next? He just keeps steamrolling his way with, through popularity, dating people, all three of the, like, the, the it girls besides Cindy Mancini. 
Well, because he rocketed his way up uh, through the ranks. Yeah. It's like I don't think he really had the uh, hours, like you know, behind the wheel, to know how to navigate. Uh, being uh, like his social intelligence wasn't that calibrated. Yeah. And um, he it reminded me of uh, like an alcoholic when he hits rock bottom when he loses all of his uh, popularity. Right. And he's got to go back and atone for, like, his transgressions while he was at the top. You know, he blew off all of his friends. Uh, he was a total asshole to, like, all the ladies that he'd been with. And, uh, yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. Like, it ends, I mean, basically, he, he goes back to being a hard-working dude. Yeah, I mean, it went full circle, basically. So what what happened was, is after the dance, and then sort of her progression, Sydney's progression of getting fed up with, like, the, you know, just seeing through all the stuff, mm-hmm. the, the illusion of popularity and how it, how, how, it, how it's attained, and what it means in the long run. So she actually hits her point at, like, a party they throw, I think at his house, I don't remember, but they're all, you know, drinking and having fun. She gets pretty drunk, and her ex-boyfriend shows up, like the old jock, like the, the, the pinnacle jock. Yeah. Who's in college playing football. Like the comes apex back. predator. Yeah, who who has the probably the worst hair I've ever seen like, in my life. Uh, and this is a movie full of like fucking horrendous hair. Like, you know. I mean, Cindy chooses terrible dudes. She's the worst. She, uh, she has terrible taste. For being um, a, a pretty self-aware character... Uh, who's sensitive when she's around um, Patrick Dempsey's character. Yeah. She, uh, when she's not with him, she's with, like, a, a pedophile, basically, college kid with a white Porsche. Oh, that guy. way too old to be with her. Yeah. And uh, and then he, like, he, he like uh, talks down to her and asks her to go get, like, extra thick chocolate milkshakes yeah. while he wipes his car down. Um, you can't, you can't treat, can't treat a 15-year-old like that. Can't treat anybody like that. No. Uh, yeah. Just building up her character as like a as like a good character. I mean, right. She's probably she's actually the moral compass for the almost the entire movie after the first like twenty minutes. Did you notice that when uh, Patrick Dempsey's character is with the cool kids, she uh, disappears? Plays the background. She's just not hanging out yeah. with them anymore, and none of them reach out to like hang out with her or see it as weird. And then when is he, that because she she he broke up with her? So she's viewed as lesser? Or she just sort of, I think, I think that might be the case, but I think that, you know, everyone uh, wants a piece of what's at the top, top of the food chain. So she had her chance, now everyone, she's, she's like a background character in that sense, in that group. Yeah. Yeah, does she have a new group of cool kids that she's hanging out with that we didn't see? No, she just hangs out, hangs out with that scummy dude with the white Porsche and just like kind of lives her whatever existence. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Well, so she's doing her own thing, kind of, you know? But still staying within the parameters of the group. I mean, she's still part of that clique. I always thought that it it, it actually... I would tell my kids uh, to not hang out with older kids uh, when you're in high school to and sacrifice hanging out with your friends. Right. Or, like, not don't date, like, a really old person who doesn't live close by. Because it's, like, it's uh, socially isolating. Like, when they're all at the malt shop and she's got to go hang out with this creep on the other end of the parking lot. <laughs> like, you're missing all the fun time just because you want to hang out with this mopey, long-haired dude that's got a Porsche. Yeah, that shouldn't be anywhere around a bunch of kids. Yeah. Especially dating a 15-year-old girl or a 16-year-old girl. Right. 
And what are you going to talk to this guy about anyway? Yeah, like, nothing. He, dri- he drives back uh, to the, and he goes, uh, oh man, I feel like I'm hanging out in a playpen. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, you're... you're that's, that's what happens when, when you, you... When you date 16-year-old girls, yeah. my friend. Well, so once, uh, once he is ostracized, once he loses all of his status, <laughs> you notice that Cindy goes right back to, the, to her clique? Yeah. And they're all friends again? Uh, that that seems a little a little weird to me, and I kind of want I kind of wanted them all to hang out with Patrick Dempsey at the end, as opposed to her having to choose between her friends and him. Oh, see, I don't even think that she chose. I mean, if you remember it, they were, her friends were encouraging her. They were like, "Go get him! Like, go right. get him!" And they were cheering and clapping for it. So but, they, I think, everyone after his little speech, yeah, <laughs> became just a, just a much better human being. Um, Do you think that they uh, would hang out with him again now as well, or did he lose all of those cool friends? No, I think he got him back. I think I think they accept him for what he is. So does he become like the uh, the enlightened Buddha of high school, yeah. where he's now friends with everyone? I mean, he gave them a pretty harsh judgment on their entire being. He becomes the 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 uh, Parker Lewis of the school. He can't lose. Where he can he can hang with the geeks, but also hang with the cool. Just so would that make him the apex predator of the school? <laughs> Uh, you know, food chain. He's the alpha. He is one hundred percent because he can flow seamlessly within any circles. Mm-hmm. A true chameleon. Another great line in that movie was when that big girl comes up to him when he was at like rock bottom. She's yeah. like, "I thought you took economics." He's like, "What?" She's like, "You could have had me for forty nine ninety five. Right. <laughs> well, laughing. that's supply and demand, dude. Is it ever? Ham butt on sale. Um. So you know. Uh, to wrap this thing up, I mean. I think it's a. I think this is a great movie if you want to watch like a sort of a time capsule of what life was like in the mid '80s, mid to late '80s. This is '87. Yeah. Um, and right around this time, the Iran Contra affair is just is bubbling up. Um, we're at the height of like Reagan's materialism, uh, and and this idea that uh, status is the most important thing and material wealth is where it's at. Uh, the school is totally white. Uh, so, you know, if you are, if you're not, you might find this an alienating film or you might watch this like you, uh, would watch Get Out to see how school is like. How the other half lives. How the other half lives. Uh, uh yeah. in, in America's, uh, cinematic apartheid. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, basically, I guess, I, I like the movie. I think it's just, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's an 80s, like, romantic comedy, teenage, coming-of-age flick. But it also, it, it has, like, a good good enough message to it. You know, like, it's worth watching. Like, so it's, it's definitely for younger kids. Oh, yeah. And I would say it provides, like, a good message to kind of just be yourself, you know? Like, you can't be cool. Trying to be cool doesn't make you cool. You sure as fuck can't buy cool. You can buy stuff. Can't buy love, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> According to Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and uh, McDreamy. Yeah, no, but if you if you rent someone yeah. and uh, you make them hang out with you long enough, maybe they'll start loving you in a sort of a hostage situation type of way. But she liked the yeah, like a, like Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That well, that's basically... how uh, I think that's how like arranged marriages. That's the theory behind them too. Is like you don't love the person, right? Uh, but you get locked into a sort of a social contract with them, and then over a couple years, uh, you start tolerating them, and then uh, you become a codependent. And then that's a form of love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's right. What is love? Is it familiarity and um, 
Who knows? Good good feelings towards the other person? I don't know. I guess it would be. Isn't that ideally the goal? Yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I like this movie enough to recommend it to people to watch it. Like, it's for it's for, it's for kids, for younger younger folks, but it's a good time capsule for kids that grew up in the eighties. Kind of remember what that was like. Even I mean, kids are people that are a little older than me. I think would appreciate the nostalgia a little more because they kind of went. to... I wasn't in high school in the eighties. I was like a kid, kid. Yeah. So yeah, I think it would hit on a lot of funny notes. Good message for people in general to try to be you know mm-hmm. nerds. The quote was his quote was nerds, jocks, my side, your side. It's all bullshit. It's hard enough just trying to be yourself. That promotes the uh, everyone sort of to deeply uh, some, some introspective thought among the entire student body, and the slow clap from uh, Dauber from Coach. <laughs> that's that's right, and uh, you know I can see the seeds of like what Apatow did later with uh, Superbad in here, and also with uh, Freaks and Geeks. It's a universal so theme, I think. We're um, we're th- this is definitely a, a film to see if you want to see the prog- progression of like what. Uh, high school films have become well alright guys uh, thank you so much for listening and uh, we will be back next week with a brand new movie uh, thank you as always I'm Gabe Pacheco I'm Sammy Hamarne and uh, today we've also got um, Kevin Hickey here <laughs> thanks for being here Kevin um, cool we'll see you guys next so please don't judge your book by its cover there's more to being a lover you gotta know how to deal with a woman that won't let go The price you pay for being a gigolo